This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to today's Positive Parenting show on AFN. I'm Armin Brat. Let me tell you a little bit of a story here. Once upon a time, in a family down the street, there was a king and a queen who had two children. One day, though, the impossible happened. The king and queen got divorced. Eventually, the king remarried. There was a new queen, a.k.a. the stepmother, and chaos reigned. Naively, when the stepmother joined the family, she expected her fairy tale to continue. Instead, questions plagued her mind. Why doesn't anyone in the stepfamily listen to me? Why doesn't the biological parents see what I see? Why am I so frustrated? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with a stepmother expert who is going to take us on a really incredible journey as she seeks to find the magic potion that will unify her family and bring sanity to the chaos. Being a stepmother really is a thankless job. I mean, just think back to all the stories that we grew up with and the stories that we probably told our own kids. I mean, just think of Hansel and Gretel and Snow White and Cinderella. I mean, all those stories, the stepmother is positively evil. But is that the way they are? Probably not. So as we go through today's show, we're going to be turning these stories that we've heard on their head a little bit. We're going to find out exactly what's going on with these stepmothers, the things that they come into, the challenges that they face, and hopefully we'll have a better understanding of what it is that stepmothers are, what it is that they do. And most importantly, we're going to be able to use that information to support them because supporting stepmothers is going to be supporting the entire family. All that's coming up when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Barbara Goldberg, who is the author of The Evil Stepmother Speaks, The Guide for Step Families Who Want to Love and Laugh. Barbara, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, why is it that stepmothers in particular, but stepfathers don't get much of a better deal, why is it that, that stepmothers are so maligned? You know, as, as simple as it may seem, it really does go back to the old fairy tale. And the reason for that is that we have seen or heard that story so many times, literally from the beginning of the time we were born in some form or fashion, either through, you know, TV. It's the same story, right? You know, there's always this woman. Oh, Hansel and Gretel, yeah. You know, I have to repeat it. And what happens is that what we forget is that, you know, when we're born, basically our left side of our brain is empty, and it just gets fed by the things that we're taught or we see 
as all human beings are. And our brains really don't know the difference between, oh, oh, that's not real, or that is real. It just interprets everything as real. So it just becomes part of our mantra as we all grow up, and it just perpetuates itself. You know, and I think it probably does really good at the box office. People love that story. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's not one story though. It's it's in a lot of different places. I mean, there's one in Cinderella. There's one in Hansel Absolutely. and Gretel. They're they're all over Snow White. Oh, I and guess. it gets repeated just recently this year. Um, you know, it'll be um, oh the Angelina Jolie movie. I just blanked. The Maleficent. Oh, Maleficent. Yeah, um, yeah. They get yeah they get redone. Once Upon a Time, the popular TV show. It just goes on and on because it's a great story that people. You know, over time, they're comfortable with it. It's a safe story. They've they've heard it. So when people are comfortable, they they like to watch it. But you I know, like to watch it too. Yeah, there's always the, there's also the stepfathers who don't get mm-hmm. as much of a bad rap in the literature, but they also they, I mean, it's a tough role to to be a step parent of any kind. It really is, and you know, and I just want to be fair. Where we get the rap in terms of being a stepmother, usually it's uh, let's see, you're a homewrecker, of course. Uh, we always are in it for the money, some big treasure at the end of the thing, or you know, we yeah, we were in it to just grabble the riches. And but stepfathers is more of like a silent but unspoken. It's more of like the predator. Yes, exactly. Like the the danger. Guy in the house. Yeah, yeah. But that's not openly spoken about as much as our story is. No. But the role, no different. It's role ambiguity. Like, what do you do now? So what do you tell somebody who's going into the thing? I mean, I get that's a question that I get asked a lot in my yeah. kind of uh, wearing my hat of his ad, advice columnist. And I think I talk a lot about expectations, having mm-hmm. been the father who was married to the stepmother. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, if you walk into the whole thing expecting that everybody's going to be one big happy family and that we're all going to love each other, you've got a big problem. Exactly. And I think... In some ways, you know, it's kind of like that old story, you know, nobody would have children if they really knew how hard it was, you know. So on some degree, um, that naivete that I certainly had and everybody else has when you go into any situation, you know, there's something, I guess, we would never do anything. But on the other hand, I think doing your homework is a good idea. Um, this isn't a pitch for my book, but other things, talking around now, you may just get on the net, read up about it, see what the common fallacies are, just so that you get this a sense of things so that you can sit down with your partner and have this kind of intelligent conversation and maybe just like, you know, in any other situation, even do some, you know, pre-counseling, kind of think things through, especially if you're bringing children into the marriage like I did. I brought my son. So if that's the case, then you really have to really think it through and talk about some of the common things, money, um, certainly scheduling, you know, certain basic value systems. Not that you have to parent exactly alike. Nobody does that. But, you know, at least having some basic ground rules, um, privacy matters. You know, you're going to have to knock on the bedroom door now when everybody was just, you know, coming and going. Um, Certainly the age of the children, that makes a difference. And, you know, it just goes on and on. But just once you get into this, I mean, just like anything else, you you can't just, you're not going to be perfect. No, nobody's going to be perfect nah. at it, but I think you know the expectations again can make it a little less painful yeah, or more and, painful and you know, depending on what you, you think. You know what happens in step families a lot. A lot of times people forget. Okay, so you know, let's just say you and I were a couple, right? Just because I love you, uh, it doesn't mean everyone that knows you and your children are going to be madly in love with me, you know, and vice versa. People are very anxious, and it gets worse now as the generations go on. They just want what they want when they want it, which is now. But really, 
like any relationship, it takes time, and it takes mm-hmm. sometimes a long time until people feel like they know you, you know, right. and they right. may like or not like you, and that's okay. And how do you suggest that you begin forming a relationship with your, your new stepchildren? Well, Which, first of all, d- depending I mean, on the have, ages, yeah. but, you know. I, I was just going to say, like, I have to say it, it's the classic, but first of all, never bad-mouth. Bad-mouthing um, the other, mom, The other parent, yeah. Yeah, parents of any way. And I'll tell you something else that isn't talked about as much, is that treating their biological parent well. You know, at the heart or heart of all things, children may not consciously realize it, but what they want more than anything else is to see their parent loved. So if you're in front of them nagging them to death and being a real pain, I mean, that's not going to help. And, you know, um, it's just being yourself. Like, there is no secret sauce to it. Just be yourself and be careful that you don't fall into the trap of constantly thinking about, you know, the whole power game behind the whole thing, about what you think people are thinking about you or what they're really doing. There's usually no big master plan. So (laughs) just be yourself and be fun. You know, it doesn't have to be a big, heavy thing. Okay. No, that's that's an important thing. I think that the bad-mouthing thing is, is really interesting because I, I know that it's very tempting. When you come into a relationship okay. and the say, say that you're the stepmother coming in and then there's the, the biological mother does not treat the former husband well. Right. She doesn't let him see the kids or she's doing other things that are just not nice to do. Right. And the natural tendency is to take the side of your spouse and to get outraged at the behavior of this other person. How do you handle things like that when, I mean, you got to tread very lightly. Oh, you really do. And I mean, and I always define bad-mouthing not only by words, but the rolling eyeballs or any facial expressions while the children are there also count. So, you know, sometimes um, I have like a little tip that I give some of my clients, and that is that sometimes we just kind of fall into it, we don't even realize it, and things just come out of our mouths, because you just get, frankly, angry. And a great game is you just put a jar out, just to kind of give yourself some boundaries, and every time you say something nasty, you know, you put a dollar in it. <laughs> okay. I mean, it, it makes you conscious and mindful of what you're, what you're doing. You, you can also have, like, little quiet conversations in your head that I always found quite humorous. But basically, in reality, it's it's in the jar. And guess what? You don't get the money. You can, you know, <laughs> buy something for the yeah. kids or, you know, whatever. But it helps you be conscious. Like, a lot of times what happens in step families, people don't realize what a major source of conversation the other ex is or, you know, whatever the complaint of the day is. And then you have no relationship yourself because you're spending 80% of your time talking about drama that most likely isn't real. Do you think it's easier to be an incoming stepmother if the previous, well, I don't know what, even know what to call, there's all these, uh, there's a whole the cast of characters, yeah. that the, the ex-wife mm-hmm. is, a lot, is dead, or if she is in a rehab, or if she's just a regular divorced kind of a person? And do, are, are, do those things each create their own individual problems, and is one of them easier? You know, they all create their own individual issues. Um, in terms of coming in in a widower situation, I mean, on some level, this doesn't sound right, I mean, you know, but maybe it's somewhat easier in that, you know, there's no sharing involved. It's not a day-to-day, you know, not at least physically sharing. You're not physically moving your children from place to place to place, which takes its toll um, in and of itself. But, of course, I mean, 
it's a question of just you know honoring the memory and obviously keeping some pictures up and you know keeping their mom and just honoring them as they would want their mom to be honored um, but they're not knocking on your door in the middle of the night you know demanding anything um, you know I don't know it, you know I don't really think that maybe like you know mental health issues or being away it probably eh, except for the physical movement probably still has a lot of issues and definitely the kids are going to need support no doubt Talking with Barbara Goldberg, who's the author of The Evil Stepmother Speaks, the guide for stepfamilies who want to love and laugh. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Barbara. I'm Armand Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. More with Mr. Dad, Armand Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Hi, I'm Ryan Seacrest for RAD. Over 300 people in this country are killed every week by a drunk driver. That's the equivalent of two 747 plane crashes every single week. And the problem isn't going away unless we all do our part to stop it. So if you see someone who's about to drive after drinking, get the keys. Don't leave it up to anyone else. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, we're talking to, with Barbara Goldberg, who's the author of The Evil Stepmother Speaks, The Guide for Step Families Who Want to Love and Laugh. And I want to kind of dispense a little bit with this whole uh, the conversations and the, the ex-wife and, and all that stuff. But there's one, one more that I wanted to ask, because this is a, an, another complicating issue, is if there was an affair and ah. you are the person who actually is a home wrecker, although you could you could spin it the other way and say the marriage was not going anywhere or you know so that it was over before you got there but how, how do you deal with that one well you know on this one and i don't want to perpetuate the myth because it really is a myth i mean again it's a small percentage i would guess although i have to say i don't know the, the statistics the formal statistics but i hear it a lot and you know it all depends a lot of it on what you know the ex is saying on the other side. So we'll just make the assumption that a lot is being said and it's just not good. It's just not good. And here's where, you know, the biological parent really comes into play. They come into play most of the time anyway. And really being able to explain the truth in an age-appropriate way rather than trying to duck it. And what a lot of times what happens in these situations, it's the, in this case we'll just use a woman because for communication purposes. That's what you're Let's talking say, about. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're a stepmom and you 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 know, you fulfilled your, you know, the whole homewrecker thing. Um, a lot of times like we'll feel guilty. Like that one will feel so guilty that they interpret every single thing that a child does or you know, what's going on in the home through that veil of like I feel really bad, I feel really guilty. I see that a lot. Rather than them just most of the time kids aren't even thinking about anything except themselves. So it's it becomes like a, almost self-fulfilling lots of times. And, you know, dad's just going to have to step in. And, you know, the bottom line is you cannot control what anyone else is saying or doing. You can try if you're the biological parent, but we all know that that's probably not going to work. 
so the age-appropriate truth, I wouldn't duck it. And you just, you know, time was on your side. Over time, people figure things out. Yeah. They yeah. do. They become adults and they become have their own relationships later on. Now, how do you get involved or how do you make make peace, I guess, with the whole idea? If you come in, in with a dad and his kids and they have a very close relationship, maybe he's been single for a while and so the kids have spent a lot of time with him and... Mm-hmm. You're coming in and you're seen as a threat right. or you're seen as somebody who is trying to elbow you out of the way. And I, I remember my situation was like that, that my mm-hmm. my uh, older daughter was booted out of being able to sit in the front seat of the car anymore. I was just going to talk about that. Which, you know, that was a big thing. I did not appreciate the gravity of that particular situation. Yes. So I what was do you, just going to say that. You mean sitting in the front seat of the car? Okay, yes. So yeah. The first time I sat in the front seat of the car, I still remember that day like it was yesterday. Same thing with you. I was thinking, what's the big deal? And I remember we were going somewhere, all these kids, and, you know, one of my stepchildren was sitting there. Well, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, oh, well, this is always my seat, right? Same as your daughter. And it was like, I don't think so. So the very first time I booted him, I booted him out from whatever we were doing. I was like, no, I don't think so now. And then I started to realize over time. You know, that whole thing, like, where I sit in the front, like, what is that? It doesn't even mean anything, but we attach a lot of meaning to it. And we attach the meaning to it, uh, you know, because somehow it's the power seat. It isn't. It's a seat. But then I figured (laughs) out, hey, you know what? But it gets there just a little quicker. No. Right. But you know what I figured out? It's more fun to sit with the other kids in the back. I get to know them better. We're laughing. And one day I just got up and I told that child, you know what? I don't want to sit in the front. It's all yours. And I went in the back. It's so much fun. It was fun back there. And you don't even think that. that Your brain doesn't even start to, like, think that that could even be fun. And also is that you have to tread lightly on those kinds of things. And um, really, it, it doesn't mean anything, the front seat. It doesn't mean anything. And so many of the other things that we talk about in this sort of, like, competitive who's first, second, third, fourth, because that's really what you're talking about. It's like the love hierarchy I'm fifth in line, I'm first, and that's really the heart of the problem. Right, right. So that's it the heart of it. So it, whether you sit next to somebody in the movie theater or not doesn't yeah. make them, I mean, you're still going to see the movie, it's still going to be just as fun. Exactly, and think about, you know, especially in more traditional divorces where the kids are going back and forth on some schedule, come on, They're, you know, come on, you don't have to sit there. It's, it, it means almost, I think, nothing but we attach to it. And you know what you know what you're really leading up to and I just want to add this to it is that many of us when we get into these situations well you know you see these conversations a lot I come first now. Like you know who who does the biological parent love more? And you know the fact is that love doesn't even know what competition is. It's not a sport. And so you just over time I'm all for the step parents that are giving in and for some of these silly things and it'll take care of itself over time. You won't even care. Now, let's flip this around a little bit yeah. and talk about things from the perspective of the non-step parent, whether that's just mm-hmm. you know, because the book is about evil stepmothers, so he's the, he's the dad. How do you deal with deciding how much to back up the stepmother in her role as in, in discipline? Uh, or, or, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because that, that's going to be a big thing is how much leeway she's got, and the power well, is going to only come from him. The kids are not going to take anything from her unless dad says to do it well first of all um, again it's being clear with people it's being clear with people um, having 
like uh, we always had family meetings, for example, to just talk about these things up front, e- front, even if they were little. So I made it clear up front, listen, I don't set policy around here, for you guys anyway. I just enforce it. So any kid worth their salt, you know, is either going to try to not listen, number one, and that's where the biological parent has to come in and say, uh-uh, they're the ones that's going to enforce. Or, of course, the most important thing is try to break the rule and use you, that <laughs> parent, to break it. I mean, anybody yeah. worth, right? And I always just say, nice try. There's your father, you know. Go ask him or call your mom, whatever they tell me to do. And it's nice because you actually have an out. People make a big deal about this a lot, but it really also depends on the custody arrangements. There are a lot of step-parents that haven't had the kids full-time. That's different. But again, family meetings, age-appropriate way, and talking about all these things up front and along the way. Big help. Do you think family meetings are a solution, or at least a partial solution, to the whole issue of being caught in the middle? And that's a a place that I remember being for a long time. You know, the kids kids would come to me and they'd say all the horrible things that uh, their stepmother was doing, and then she would come to me and say all the horrible things that they were doing. And I had nothing to say to anybody, really. Well, you know, um, and I talk about this. I do do, you know, it's a whole, my book is a fast read, and it's like the whole fairy tale retold, but I do do chapters from what we call the king's perspective. Right. Because, yeah, I totally talk about that. Because nobody, well, besides the children, you know, the person that gets beat up the most is actually the, the dad or the person in the middle. Absolutely. the per- They just get beat up on every front, including money, by the way. And so, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I think it's just something that I do think family meetings help. and But not like to sit there and say, well, she said this and he said this. It's to set policy. Listen, guys, here's how it works. You know, curfew's at 10, and I'm setting it, and Barb over here, she's going to have to enforce it. You want it changed? You want anything? It's not her. It's me. You know, and whatever else the issues are. And just to sit down and say, hey, family meeting, you know, I don't have to have them once a week and be, like, impulsive about it, but they're good to have once a year or twice if you think you need them. And, um, yeah, I think it really helps. Now, so it's really difficult to talk about the situation because, or talk about the whole concept of stepmothers because there's so many different variations and every situation is going to be somewhat different. But in your experience dealing with clients and, mm-hmm. and being involved in this for many years and having practical experience, what's the hardest thing about being a stepmother? You know what the hardest thing is, is that this is going to sound really corny, but being in a step-parent situation, it sort of forces you to really come to grips with all those sort of new-agey type things that we always learn. Like, you have to really know yourself. You have to be this, like, generous, grateful person. And, and, and when you think about all the issues, that you really almost are forced to give up your power that you think you have, the more traditional things that we think of as power, and really get to the heart of issues and really get to almost like this, almost like a spiritual space, believe it or not, because you can't, sit there and compete for love and you can't compete for time and you can't, you know, um, not be generous in all forms and spaces. And it really taps into um, forcing you to take a good hard look at yourself and that's just no fun, I got to tell you. And when it really comes down to it, that's what ends up happening because you really have to sit there and go, well, if you've got, you know, two hours a day to gossip about, you know, the ex-wife, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> you know, exactly. That, you yeah. know, seriously. I mean, because I, I can think of other things to do with it. 
if you want help. I mean, you know, you get the gist. Yep, yep. And that's when it becomes, that's when people start saying it's brutal, it's hard work, because it'll hit into, like, your classic, it sounds so, you know, low self-esteem issues, your doubts about yourself. If you have any of those, you're going to learn about them real quick. Barbara Goldberg's the author of The Evil Stepmother Speaks, The Guide for Step Families Who Want to Love and Laugh. And Barbara, thanks very much for joining us. You're not that evil after all. <laughs> That's a, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, take care. There once was a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dinky Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Well, I'm taking Algebra 2 in a foreign language. Oh, so you can talk to unicorns? <laughs> uh, exactly. Unless they're French. Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find the classes he really needed. Getting into college doesn't happen magically. Learn more at knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad, and wanted to jump right into today's Ask Mr. Dad column because there are getting to be so many of these things and want to get in as many as we can. Dear Mr. Dad, I've been reading your columns for quite a few years, and you frequently talk about how important it is to read to children. Now, with all the emphasis on literacy, I think we're forgetting about writing. When I was in school, we had classes in penmanship, but my preschooler and kindergartner aren't learning it at all. Is writing even necessary anymore? In a word, absolutely. Not all that long ago, we used to talk about the three R's. Remember those? Reading, writing, and arithmetic, which are the fundamental skills that are taught in school. Of course, they're not really three R's. There's a W in there and an A in there, but the point being that it's the three R's, it's a lot catchier. But as you've noticed, the second R, which is writing, has pretty much fallen by the wayside. In fact, over the past two years, schools all around the country have stopped teaching cursive altogether, and a growing number of children are doing their homework, including writing papers and essays, all online without touching a pen at all. According to a new study, the percentage of children using tablets has doubled in the past two years alone and now includes 75% of children under 8 and nearly 40% of kids under 2. Now, some people are saying that with all that technology, there's really no needs for kids to learn how to write at all anymore, right? It's a lot easier to just use a tablet or other device. I see the point. I really do. And I get that typed assignments are a lot easier for teachers to read. But at the risk of sounding like an old fogey, I think writing is a very important skill, the actual mechanics of writing. And there's getting to be a lot of research on this to back me up. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a big, big fan of technology. But another recent study found that kids are using tablets so much that it's actually hindering their development. A group of researchers at the American Academy of Pediatrics says that when kids spend huge amount of time interacting with tablets and don't get enough hands-on paper and pencil time, their hand-eye coordination suffers, and so does their muscle strength. Oh, but that's not all. As we all know, there is a direct correlation between a child's reading ability and the size of his or her vocabulary and future academic and career successes. That's according to Dorit Aram, who's a researcher at Tel Aviv University. So how does making marks on paper actually help with literacy? It's actually fascinating, I think. Before a child writes anything down, she first has to come up with an idea of what to write. That stimulates thinking and planning skills and reinforces vocabulary. Then, 
the child has to think about the sounds each letter or combination of letters makes. It's a process that's called decoding. And he or she has to decide which letters to write down and in which order. Good decoding skills are absolutely essential to good reading skills. In another study, the same researcher, Dorit Aram, found that three to five-year-olds who, besides being read to, also were learning about letters and were encouraged to write, they've got far better literacy skills than preschoolers who are only read to. Overall, she says, children's word-writing skills at the end of kindergarten uniquely predict children's literacy skills, including spelling, reading, comprehension, and oral reading as they get older. One of the most important components here is parent involvement. We cannot forget that and cannot underestimate that at all. Kids whose parents encourage them to write and help with letter formation and decoding, they write more, they spell better, they have better reading skills than those whose parents aren't as involved. So the bottom line here, if your kids aren't learning to write, help them. They may not appreciate it now, but they'll thank you later. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad segment or a Parents at Play segment, depending on which week it is. You've got to stay tuned for these things to keep up with it. But don't go quite yet, because there's a lot more positive parenting straight ahead. I'm Armin Brott. We'll be right back. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Okay, forest animals, today is a new day. Kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow. Yes? Have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. Okay, river. Dude, how's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. Perfect for a little riverside shoeless relaxation. Ah, good. Owl, you hear? Quash. Who's asking? I am. Look, you know the drill. Sleep during the day, scare the kids at night. Perfect. I love my job. Uh, oak tree? Sup? Still in the same place I left you last year. That's what I like. Consistency. Well, it's not like I'm going anywhere for the next couple hundred years. I know. I love it. Uh, turtle. Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Ugh. He's late every morning. You'd think you would have learned by now to leave the night before our meetings. Okay. Squirrel. Has anybody seen Mr. Squirrel? The forest has been preparing just for you. Visit a forest near you today. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello and welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show on AFN. I'm Armin Brott. Like many parents, probably like most parents, Jennifer Tyler Lee struggled to get her kids to eat healthy, balanced meals. Then she discovered that the answer really is making it into a game. We'll try one new food each week, she told her kids. You pick. She called it the 52 New Foods Challenge, and pretty soon, surprisingly, her kids were clamoring for kale and brainstorming the best ways to cook Brussels sprouts. And believe it or not, you can do the same thing in your house. The key to making a change in the way that your family looks at food and prepares food and eats food, most importantly, really has to do with seeing things in a new light, changing your perspective. And that is hard. There's no question about it. But... There is help. We're going to be speaking in this part of today's show with Jennifer Tyler Lee, who is the one who's created the 52 New Foods Challenge. We're going to focus on three things. 
making it fun, how to end those battles over broccoli and bring back some of the joy of mealtime. And then we're going to talk about boosting variety, how to explore new foods and bust boredom at your family table, and how to cook together with kids of all ages, learning to cook with your kids, not for your kids. The goal in all of this is to help you stop stressing over mealtimes and find a creative, playful solution that can make family cooking and family eating relaxing and fun. We'll jump into our family cooking adventure when Positive Parenting continues right after this. My name is Mira Batra, and this is How I Live United. Many families have come to America for a better life. I advocate for these families with United Way. United Way empowers them to see opportunities available. We help them get involved with their kids' schools and network within the community. My name is Mira Batra. I help families see opportunity and succeed. I don't just wear the shirt. I live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jennifer Tyler Lee, who's the author of 52 New Foods Challenge, a family cooking adventure for each week of the year with 150 recipes. And there is a second one, which we'll talk about too, which is a, a separate edition, and you can tell us about that in just a few minutes. But Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me in studio, Armin. It's great to be here. So let's talk a little bit about... Why something new every year? I mean, that, that in, in some ways, when you think, okay, that's great. You have, that should be a wonderful thing, great experience. But it puts a lot of pressure, I think, on people to have to do something new every week because, you know, so those of us who are busy with kids, it's like, oh, Wednesday is taco night or something. We do the same thing every week. That's it. So I completely understand once a week for an entire year can feel feel like a lot. But let's reframe this. This is part of a bigger problem. Parents are struggling to get their kids to eat real food. And that problem is leading. It's, it's part of really a massive health epidemic, right? We are in the middle of massive rates of diabetes and home cooking rates are at an all-time low. We need to make a change. Uh, parents know what to ne- what we need to do, but we're not doing it. So what can we do to make this better? The 52 New Foods Challenge is, is aimed at solving that problem. So the idea is do one thing once a week, something really simple with your kids. Set aside 30 minutes once a week and cook together. That kind of time not only helps them eat better, but sets them up for a lifetime of healthy habits. Okay. No, 30 minutes once a week. 30 minutes once that, that That right there, okay, that sounds a little bit more manageable. Yeah, I can do that, right? <laughs> okay, th- better. And and so, but hold on, I have to ask. You have to further slice that a little thinner. Is that including prep time? So here's the beautiful oh, thing. Yeah. Prepping vegetables, even if that's all you do in that 30 minutes, yeah. helps move you in the right direction. So what I talk about in the book is reframing cooking. I do it in a couple different ways. One is reframe cooking. Think of it like a craft activity. Okay. Right? 30 minutes at a low-down kid's table or maybe your kitchen table, and you set up the cooking project and let your kids lead. It's not about the perfect recipe. It's about letting them explore the ingredients together. Right? And 
So the other piece of reframing cooking is thinking about it more broadly. Cooking can go all the way back to the farmer's market or your garden. Going and finding a new food at the farmer's market can be part of the 30 minutes you spend that week. Or it could be 30 minutes prepping vegetables for the week ahead, tearing that kale and washing it and putting it into glass containers that you stack in your fridge, peeling the carrots, all those things are great experiences that help change the way that your kids eat. So if all you have time for in that 30 minutes is prep for the week ahead, that's still a huge benefit to your kids and your family. Okay. And how do you start taking into consideration diet, special diet kinds of things? There's so much of that is going on now. I actually just got, I have a friend who's a functional medicine doctor. And so she's, all of her suggestions have to do with the intestines. And so she said, you know what you need to do? You need to get on no gluten, no sugar, no dairy, no soy, which is, and I got to tell you, I feel absolutely fantastic. So I clearly had some problems with some of those things, but it's hard to shop for that, honestly. I mean, looking at packages, there's milk and wheat and everything. It can be. And one of the beauty, uh, the, the beauty in the plan that I've got here is that it's focused on whole fruits and vegetables, right? So most of the time you're buying something that's not even in the package, right? So we're that's avoiding good. that problem yeah. entirely. The second thing, though, is when you've got someone in your family who has a special need around their diet, whether it's because of a preference or whether it's because of a health issue, getting the whole family on board with that plan is really important. And I think the trick is to get everybody experimenting with some new ways to explore those foods together so that it's not just one person driving the agenda at the table. It's everybody getting on board. I think what this comes down to is how do you get your family engaged in changing the way that you eat? Because at the end of the day, we're eating too much packaged food. We're not cooking at home enough, right? Home cooking rates, right now, half of our meals are eaten outside of the home. And it's a big, big change from what it was a couple generations ago. So how do we change that? Parents are busy. We don't have time. Um, Setting aside this little bit of time once a week to do this with your kids. I talk about in the book how it's important to cook with your kids, not for your kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that helps build this muscle because we're not teaching our children how to care for their bodies long term. And we need to find ways to make it easy for parents to do that. So Mm -hmm. if you set aside this 30 minutes, right, in the same way that you would set aside 30 minutes to do a craft activity. You know, I just think like the craft activity is a really great analogy because for for the question I'm just going to ask you, 30 minutes with a 12-year-old or an 8-year-old, that's okay. But if you've got a 4-year-old, you're going to end up having to spend 30 minutes cleaning up after what the kid is doing. And it can be, I would think, incredibly, I actually know this from experience, incredibly frustrating. I mean, you want to do this. You want to get the meal on the table. And yes, you'd like to play play a little bit with your child. But you know what? Let's just focus and try to get this thing done because I'm out of time. I've got projects. And, you know, so the craft activity, I think we would be more patient with a four-year-old who is trying to cut paper dolls or something than we would be with a four-year-old who's throwing flour all over the place. You're hitting the nail on the head. That's exactly right. So you don't want to be doing this when you're trying to rush to get food on the table. That's probably the, the worst time to try something like this. But when you set aside dedicated time for your child and your goal is to help build their confidence and to inspire creativity 
and curiosity in your kids, mm-hmm. then you think about it in a totally different way. Um, we've we've run I've run a series of cooking classes actually, some of them at Whole Foods, and what was interesting is we watched parents and and mm-hmm. listened to what they were saying in those classes when they were doing a traditional recipe. And a lot of it is, no, 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 don't do that. Stop that. Let me let me do this part, right? In, in many ways, short-circuiting yeah. what could be yeah. building a tremendous amount of confidence in your child. So when you start to think about it in a different way and your goal is to let your kids explore and experiment where it's not really about the perfect recipe at the end. Because in 30 minutes, what are you going to make? That what, What's a four-year-old going to make in 30 minutes that is actually going to be edible? Probably not a heck of a lot. But what you can do in those 30 minutes is inspire some curiosity and build that confidence because it's really not about I've got the perfect meal that everybody's going to eat at the end of that 30 minutes. It is about letting that child explore. And something simple like kale chips or Brussels sprouts chips. Brussels sprouts chips are one of my favorites. And I actually had a story from a parent last night who came to me said they made it in their preschool class. And it's her daughter was just so proud because she could do it herself. It's so simple. All you need to do, cut the end of the Brussels sprout off with with a knife. Now, mm-hmm. if you're so not you comfortable with that as a parent, and then they start peeling feathers, them apart. Yeah. Right. And if you're not comfortable with a knife as a parent, that's totally fine. I think you want to build towards that because kids are really capable when we give them the opportunity to do this. Well, we'd have them start cutting something a little softer than a Brussels sprout. I mean, that's that's a recipe for chopping off fingers right there. You could so pretend, right. You could potentially start with something easier like kale. Something. Well, yeah. kale doesn't even require any, right. any yeah. knives, right? You're just tearing the leaves off, tossing them in the pan. And that's that's a way for them to start it's building this confidence because at the end of the day it's not really about the broccoli what it is is it's about it's about inspiring confidence in our kids right. and setting them up for a lifetime of healthy habits so how do we do that this is what the book is squarely right. aimed at so we're going to jump in and talk about that as soon as we come back from a break but just before we go I wanted to ask you a quick question about Getting the kids involved in shopping. Do you, are you a, a fan of that? Because it seems like, especially with younger ones and especially with ones who might be picky, that if you can say, hey, you pick out the, the, you know, the stuff that we're going to be using from this particular section of the grocery store, it's going to increase the chance they're going to be into making it and into eating it. That is. It's, it, I, for a long time, I would hire a babysitter so that I could go shopping because I couldn't deal with going through <laughs> the grocery aisle together. So I completely understand that. But when you, again, reframe it, Think about it like a game. What One easy thing that you can do with your kids is challenge them to fill the cart with color. And someone who's two could even do this. So what they do is they go to the produce aisle and they're finding five different colors to put in your cart. A lot of times what will happen, too, you'll find you pick the same thing over and over, right? It's green beans. It's green broccoli. It's green apples. Even just mixing up things that you normally purchase – with a new color is helping to build this idea that we have variety on our table. Kids can do that in the mm-hmm. grocery store. You can also challenge them to find the one new thing that they would like to explore that week. And that can right. be cooking it. It can be bringing it home and washing it. It can be cutting it up. It can be finding some new fun adventure related to it, like Romanesco. And I can talk right. more about that one, too. Talking with Jennifer Tyler Lee, who's the author of The 52 New Foods Challenge, a family cooking adventure for each week of the year with 150 recipes. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking with Jennifer. Jennifer. 
I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my eighth grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Jennifer Tyler Lee, who's the author of the 52 New Foods Challenge, family a family cooking adventure for each week of the year. Jennifer, thanks for coming in again. It's always delightful to have people in the studio. So tell us a little bit about the challenge. Now, how you're let's let's set that up and get into some of those things because you, you gave a little tease for it before, so now we got to do it. That's it. So the idea is how do we make it easy? for families to change the way that we eat. So together, take on one new food, right? You don't have to do this even for every week of the year, but even if you commit to do it, say for a month, or or even just do it this week, trying one new food takes the stress off of all the things that are happening at the table and starts to help make this a fun game, help make this an adventure, and put your kids in charge. So... A lot of what I talk about in the book is finding ways to let your kids lead. It's a really core principle that I have in the book, and really what it comes down to is an educational philosophy. And the idea is if you put your kids in charge, if you let them choose one new food to try and explore that together, then they're going to have the incentive to try something new. They're going to feel the confidence uh, that comes with exploring and experimenting. So the idea with once a week is kind of based on this idea of micro habits. If you try to change everything in your family all at once, sure, most likely that's not going to be sustainable. Well, it's right? the thing like I'm going to lose 100 pounds. That's it. So most you're lose two pounds this week. It's why most diet plans fail because you try to change everything in your life, and you may be able to sustain that for a week or two weeks, or maybe if you're lucky, a month. But eventually, all those old habits are going to start to creep in. So the the idea to establish long lasting change for anybody, for parents or for kids, is to take small steps, all moving in the right direction. So the idea behind trying one new food a week is that it's easy. And everybody can get on board, and it's not a lot that you have to do. So you feel, I can do this. I can set aside 30 minutes, and we can experiment and explore with one new food a week. Now, the other thing I would say is new doesn't have to be some scary new vegetable in in the produce (laughs) aisle. Something that you've never tried before. Right. Sometimes it is, and that's fine. But new can also be a familiar food prepared in a new way. A good example of this might be apples. Most kids will eat apples, but having fun slicing them and baking them into apple chips is another fun way to try a food that regularly shows up on your table in a new way. Again, it goes back to this idea of helping your kids learn, helping everyone in your family learn, that the key to health is variety and changing things up on your plate is a good thing to do. Now- Protein. We've been talking a lot about whole vegetables and, and fruits. 
what are you what are you putting in there for protein? Because that that it seems like in in some ways kids will eat more of, particularly if it's breaded. Well, and the book is is really aimed at how do you build more variety on your plate. So mm-hmm. we're we're kind of good with the protein and the carbs in most households, right. right? Carbs in particular, and so. But how do we add more colors? Because when you look at the data, we are not parents and kids are not eating anywhere near enough. Oh no, fruits no, and not vegetables, even close. not it's even terrible. close, yeah. not even close. So what do we do to build? that side of the plate, right? And make those colors half of your plate. How do we get there? So there are proteins in the book, and I call them workhorse recipes. A lot of times when you're introducing something new on the table, what you don't want to do is short order cook. So you need something on that table that's a recipe you know your kids are going to eat. And there's several of them in there Many of them are proteins. I call them workhorse recipes because they do the job for me, right? Okay. They show up on the table. The kids are going to eat it. Um, so n- now there are some vegetables in there that are also good sources of protein, some beans like chickpeas. Mm-hmm. Um, we're challenging to get my kids to try. So that's one that's on there. That's another good source of protein, especially if you're going more plant-based foods. Um, but that's generally how I deal with protein in the book. Because really, it's about how do we build out the colors on our plate. And mm-hmm. I, I also call them colors for a very specific reason. When you, when you talk about vegetables, generally kids will turn up their noses. Right. Uh, and there's actually some new research that shows that when you call something healthy, kids are less likely oh, to Oh, yeah. Eat. I saw that. Yeah. Any parent would not it's... be surprised by that. <laughs> But but um, I call them colors for a very specific reason. Colors are part of a kid's language. They mm-hmm. get it when you talk about colors. That evokes feelings of fun fun times at preschool. Um, and when you talk about vegetables, they generally right. resist. So, so focusing on colors is a good, good way so to I'm, go. So I'm curious about this, just as you're saying colors. Have you ever dealt with colorblind kids I'm, I'm actually curious about, since they're not seeing the same range of colors we are, whether everything looks bland to them, or, or how, do you, how do you deal with them? And they're mostly boys. Well, that's really, it's a really interesting question, and I would love to see how that data lines up, if that actually makes an impact on the way those kids eat. And that's something I'm going to have to follow back up with you about, because that is a really, <laughs> really cool question. I start looking into I it myself, I like that. Too. No, I think that's great. But, you know, even when it's not color, it can be texture. Right, right. Well, that's the thing that I think that kids respond to more than anything is the texture of something in their mouth. If they they get it in their mouth, even if they don't like the way that it looks and it feels good— they're okay with it. Well, but if, you, you know, something's beautiful and you think, oh, they're going to love this and they get it in there and it's too crunchy or too soft or too slimy or whatever, no. Well, and so I think that's, this is a really important point. What we need to do is explore and experiment with lots of different tastes and textures, textures being really important. So a great example is with my daughter and cauliflower. We tried cauliflower a bunch of different ways. We tried it roasted, which was, I thought, delicious. We tried it as a soup. None of these things seemed to work. And she came home from the school garden all excited, sharing about a story that she had tried cauliflower in the garden raw. And I just could, I was absolutely floored. The taste of raw cauliflower is not appealing to me at all. The texture is not appealing to me at all. But that is exactly the point. What works for me may not work for her. And so as a parent, you need to experiment with Mm -hmm. lots of different textures to see what works with your kids. 
Brussels sprouts is another really good example. The reason why we created the Brussels sprouts chips recipe, which are these, it's, it's kind of a riff on kale chips, but the idea was building on what a texture that my daughter liked. So she would pick out the leaves when we would slice Brussels sprouts in half and roast them in the oven. She would just pick out the leaves because that's the part that she liked, the crispy, crunchy, mm, okay. delicious part. She didn't so it's much. a great discovery, yeah. And, and so we said, what would happen if we created an entire recipe based on your preference for the texture of crispy leaves? And, and those Brussels sprouts chips, she eats them straight from the pan. So, again, exploring and experimenting to see what might work for your child is really important. It's just like how you would, how you would teach them anything else, how you would teach them math or reading. You've got to find out what works for them. Yeah. So we only have about a minute and a half or two minutes left. Tell us a little bit about the other version of the 52 New, new Foods Challenges that is going to be in Williams-Sonoma. Yes. All, thanks. all over the place. Thanks. We are so excited about the book releasing at Williams-Sonoma. <laughs> That's happening at the end of December. And uh, they have their own exclusive edition of the book, which is super exciting. And we'll be hosting cooking classes for kids across the country, recipes based on the book. This idea that together as a family, you can have a lot of fun exploring and experimenting. And it doesn't need to be a complicated recipe. It can be something very simple. But putting your kids in charge of picking something new, we're going to start out in January with something called Blender Bar, which is you take a base recipe for a smoothie. Um, and then you let your kids personalize it and choose what they want to add as a new food to try. It's it's great fun, and and then they all get to trade. It, it's just it's a it's it's a great way to engage your kids. Great. Okay. So and then you got to tell us since we're working sort of backwards in time, just briefly, Crunch a Color, a healthy eating game. What's what was that? That's how you got started. Right. Crunch a Color was exactly how we got started. My daughter, when she was two, ate everything. By the time she was going into kindergarten, was eating mac and cheese and peas, and it was very challenging to get her to eat any colors. So. I quite literally created this game at our kitchen table. It was initially based on index cards, and the idea is very simple. You get points for produce. Um, so, for example, kale would be worth five points. Kale is worth, or kiwi is worth five points. Kale is worth fifteen bonus points for trying something new. So, it's it's a way of getting you out of that intractable place with your children when there is a tremendous amount of stress and a control issue at your table. It puts them in charge of making their own healthy choices and gives them a fun way to do that and stealthily teaches them what a balanced plate looks like. We've been talking with Jennifer Tyler Lee, who's the author of the 52 New Foods Challenge, a family cooking adventure for each week of the year. There's also another version of it, slightly different cover, that is going to be at Williams-Sonoma, and you should definitely check out Crunch a Color, a healthy eating game. Got a website? Yes, 52newfoods.com. I hope you'll check it out. With numbers. Yes, 50, the number 52, newfoods.com. Thanks, Jennifer. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at mrdad.com. While you're there, visit the mrdad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the mrdad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.